Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is November 5th, 2021. After the Halloween hangover subsided, we saw some movement in several hot-button FDA issues this week, along with a surprising senior staff departure. First up is drug pricing. Congressional leaders announced this week that after months of negotiations, no pun intended, an agreement allowing the Medicare program to negotiate drug prices has been reached. The plan is somewhat complicated, but we're going to try and break it down for you. The deal allows for a subset of drugs to have their prices negotiated. Only 10 will be selected the first year, which is 2025, but depending on how the bill language is interpreted, the total eventually could rise to 100 by 2030. Those selected must be among the highest cost drugs in Part D and Part B. Small molecule drugs chosen must have been on the market for at least seven years, and biologics must have been on the market at least 10 years. Companies that refuse to comply with the process face an excise tax penalty. And when negotiating, the average manufacturer prices for selected drugs would be discounted from 25% to 60%, depending on the length of time since their exclusivity ended. Those on the market for more than 12 years get the 25% discount, while those on the market more than 16 years get a 60% discount. The discounts are what price negotiators are supposed to consider. And when new drugs are not required to ha- new drugs are not required to have their prices negotiated. And along with all that, sponsors also have to provide HHS a ton of data as part of the process, such as sales, patent and exclusivity information, R&D costs, as well as production and distribution costs. Okay, did you get all that? <laughs> so for the panel, I, I mean, I, I'm going to go to Sarah, you and Matt, because you're, you're, you have the expertise on this. I mean, what, what sticks out to you on this? So um, I think the, the big thing to think about here is how this compares to H.R. 3, the drug pricing bill that Democrats had been working on in the House for a long time and had passed actually under the Trump administration, but of course the Senate never took that up there. Um, And basically what happened, um, uh, time is so hard these days, but last week, I guess, at some point, you know, Biden released kind of a framework for what he wanted this final um, social spending bill to look like and drug pricing was not in there at all. that resulted in a lot of outrage um, by some groups and, you know, some lawmakers and so forth. And over the past week or so, a compromise has been worked out. And what we have is sort of a a much pared back version of H.R. 3 with um, some big um, differences. So, um, first of all, I, I think, as you highlighted a lot, um, you know, drugs won't be eligible for um, negotiation while they're um, generally under their like first exclusivity period. Um, so, you know, Democrats were ha- in HR three were kind of hoping that you know a drug initially on the market could be subject to negotiation. Obviously, the longer you get um, on the market, the more likely you might have some kind of competition. Although. Of course, as we know, the patents and exclusivity protect that to some degree. Um, The other big thing is they sort of changed how, um, you know, and this is why people have always sort of debated whether this is really negotiation or sort of semi-price setting. Um, You know, HR3 basically set a maximum 
price for the drug using international reference pricing that was unpopular among a certain group of folks. And that's why they came up with sort of a new formula based on average manufacturer price in the, um, you know, the U.S. market, you know, non-governmental market. So um, that's probably another win for drug companies. Um, so and they also kind of changed the penalty. Um, there was a, in the old um, version of a, in HR three, there was a 95 percent excise tax on companies that didn't negotiate. So basically, people felt like, again, there was no option to negotiate with the government. You were sort of forced to Here, the penalty is a bit less, although it's still pretty steep and it'll increase over time. Um, so. And then, of course, um, this got paired with some stuff that's a little bit more popular with the pharmaceutical industry, which is there's a um, redesign of Medicare Part D so that patients will now have an out-of-pocket cap. There's a maximum amount they can spend each year. Um, and there's some shifting of, you know, who's responsible for what in Part D in terms of the government's burden, um, insurance company's burden, pharma company's burden. So, I mean, I think the the, the headline here is that this is, you know, probably a decent win for the drug industry in terms of the scope of what pro types of drug products um, can be negotiated and how big of a financial hit it will be um, for them. Um, I think in my mind, and perhaps this is why pharma still um, issued a very scathing statement that you can read in Kathy's story. The question is like, does this sort of check the box for Democrats and for the American public to feel like, okay, we took care of the drug pricing issue and we don't hear about this again for another, you know, decade or something? Or does the fact that they were able to sort of start chipping away at that non-interference clause that government can't negotiate prices in Medicare, does that become something like this is the first strike and you know, the Democrats who needed to compromise here and will they be able to build on it faster um, than maybe and, you know, kind of keep chipping away at pharma over the next few years. Um, so I think that's really what remains to be seen, because I, I don't think this is a I know as much as pharma is going to complain about it um, in many ways, this is a pretty um, you know, as, as I think Kathy called it, kind of a, a light, a light <laughs> hit on them compared to what they could have experienced. Yeah, I, uh, um, I agree with you, uh, 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 Sarah, that uh, uh, pharma um, is uh, most likely sort of shedding crocodile tears in terms of sort of kind of how, uh, how upset they are with this deal that they, uh, you know, they got a lot of what uh, they want in terms of uh, um, access with the uh, um, the out-of-pocket caps and uh, um, obviously the uh, the scope and structure of the uh, uh, negotiations are uh, um, far less draconian than they uh, um, than they had been in the uh, um, disastrous, as they call it, uh, um, uh, Pelosi bill. And I, I think most uh, observers uh, would agree that uh, you know had HR three uh, been passed as uh, um, as drafted, it really would have uh, you know profoundly transformed the. Uh, the pharmaceutical industry, you know, not so much perhaps because of sort of kind of the uh, the strict mechanics of the negotiations, but it just it would not be seen as sort of kind of a uh, uh, you know a place where ex explosive growth was possible, uh, um, and uh, that would sort of change change investment uh, 
pattern. So, uh, you know, I think it's a really, uh, really a uh, um, important win for uh, um, uh, the pharmaceutical uh, companies, given the uh, the hand they were dealt. Sort of, you know, Republican uh, um, uh, Republicans have been uh, the traditional allies, and they are uh, out of power in Congress and the the White House at the moment. And uh, um, Democrats wanted to act, and uh, and yet still, Pharma uh, um, got uh, you know what, what seems like a a pretty good deal. I uh, I also have to admire. Uh, um, the Biden administration's approach to uh, leaving it out of their initial framework and then sort of kind of forcing a panic among uh, uh, those who uh, really wanted it to happen and sort of kind of uh, um, that sort of I think sort of kind of uh, created the compromise uh, circumstances more than uh, um, more than anything else and uh, um, you know they get they do get to check the box and say they uh, they uh, they addressed it and I uh, I genuinely feel that this is probably the uh, um, you know, just sort of given the political dynamics and sort of kind of uh, um, everything else, this is probably the uh, the last big uh, pricing reform, assuming this passes. And uh, there's still questions about sort of kind of you know how long will you know drugs have uh, um, until they have to negotiate sort of kind of what you know what really constitutes an old drug in terms of sort of kind of negotiating that kind of stuff and you know exclusivity and uh, um, you know how how long that has to be expired or even even really has to be expired before they uh, come under the uh, um, the microscope there. Um, so uh, um, back to my original thought: the, uh, that they uh, um, they do uh, um, they, they, this is probably the uh, the last bit of big legislation for a long time on on this, and farmers should be pretty happy about how it uh, how it turned out. Yeah, obviously, um, you know, as Matt sort of started to hint at, um, the caveat here is well, it does seem like. Um, Later today, um, we're talking on Friday, November 5th here, that the House will pass this third version of the social spending bill. It then has to go to the Senate um, where, you know, there is some possibility um, a couple senators could potentially balk at this. And the other issue with the Senate is there's just more um, the type of legislation. This is a reconciliation bill. There's sort of more arcane rules about what types of um legislation actually qualifies to be in that and so there's always a question of things get stripped out I, I don't expect this to like completely go away but we you know we sort of have to caveat that this is it seems like this is fairly close to a done deal but you sort of never know in washington <laughs> <laughs> well i i know one thing that i'm going to look forward to going away since we're talking about this issue, you know, finally maybe being addressed is the the commercials that Farm has been running pretty much 24 hours a day. It feels like saying that you know this is equivalent to price setting and no one's going to be able to take the drugs they need to take and you know how awful that is and you know call your congressman and tell him not to vote for tell him drug negotiations are bad and you know all that kind of thing. I, I, the, the telling thing about whether this deal is done will be when those commercials actually go away. I think. <laughs> It's a good point, Jerry. I don't know how how uh, how many uh, how long those ad buys have to be if we're still going to be uh, um, you know seeing those for kind of after the president has uh, um, you know, signed this as we're expecting him to. But uh, um, it's interesting uh, interesting metric. Yeah. Hey, just a, a, something I noticed in in the list of data points that they have to provide that Kathy's story mentioned was they have to give them comparative effectiveness data and. Um, it says the, the drug's effects on specific populations like the elderly or the terminally ill or children. Is that, do you feel like that's kind of giving them, you know, maybe giving the, uh, you know, the drug sponsor a lot of leverage there? I mean, if you can, you could argue it's an unmet need or something along those lines. And then, you know, you know, you could, you could potentially get a better, uh, a better deal out of this. 
Well, there, there's certainly some uh, uh, language that uh, pharma must like in terms of sort of kind of the, the you cannot, uh, you know, weigh the effects on, uh, you know, say an elderly or disabled uh, um, uh, person differently than you could on sort of kind of younger or healthier persons. Sort of, this is the whole uh, controversy over qualities, uh, the quality adjusted uh, uh, life year, uh, you know, impact that uh, – um, uh, that pharma hates uh, um, so much, and so, so to the extent that uh, um, it uh, um, uh, that removing that uh, um, uh, measurement technique uh, um, allows pharma to uh, uh, describe the, their drugs in the way that they want them described, I think it is uh, um, it, it is a big win for them. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, we're we're all eagerly anticipating this the deal to move forward, and you know, maybe this time. You know, next week we'll be talking about how President Biden's ready to sign the package. Next, we're going to look at the authorization of the COVID-19 vaccine in children age 5 to 11. The FDA granted the EUA about a week ago, but the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices met this week to decide whether all children in that age group should get the shot. Sarah, you were part of the team that covered that meeting for us. What did you find out? So, um... Yeah, the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices was pretty um, all in on um, this vaccine for children 5 to 11. Um, you listened to the FDA advisory panel with me the week before, and, um, you know, we obviously noted that while the committee ultimately voted in favor of it, there was seemed to be some concerns during that meeting that they weren't going to, and did they need to change the question so that FDA could get to some kind of positive vote? Um, <laughs> because there were a lot of, I think, reservations among people on the FDA panel about what they, they definitely felt like there were some populations of children five to 11 that clearly should get this vaccine, that the benefits outweigh the risks for them. And then they seemed a bit more concerned that maybe there were some populations for whom um, either maybe there needed to be consideration of, did they really need two shots? Or, you know, if the prevalence of COVID is fairly low, are they at higher risk for myocarditis than a bad COVID outcome? And they seem to like, kind of concede at points that like maybe this wasn't their area to address and the ACIP could sort of flesh out, um, you know, they could kind of clear the shot, um, but then the ACIP could kind of maybe flesh out recommendations for various populations of children. Um, ACIP, um, either they, they didn't listen to that or they, they didn't um, agree with it at all. <laughs> um, they were pretty clear um, in their remarks and very enthusiastic that they felt like everyone in this population really should get the vaccine and um, they did not have those same concerns. So it was a pretty um, smooth run for Pfizer's um, vaccine there for children. Did that surprise you that, you know, the scientific, I mean, you know, obviously there's going to be, you know, nobody, you know, these these scientists all think differently and they all have, you know, there's a hundred different opinions on all of this, but I mean, did that surprise you that they didn't they didn't have some of the same concerns as as some of the the FDA people did? Yes and no. Um, you know, if since the um, FDA advisory committee meeting, I I've been noticing just like following the general sort of scientific medical opinion of kind of the very um, outspoken you know medical doctors out there on vaccines that the enthusiasm for Pfizer's product for this age group was 
in general stronger than I think the FDA advisory committee was. So perhaps there was something unique about, you know, how this this panel was considering things. Um, I was surprised a little bit that like at least the CDC panel didn't ad address some of those concerns a, a bit more. Um, I mean, I think in some of the data and the presentations that CDC gave, some of those concerns were addressed because, you know, they certainly, you know, had a detailed presentation about myocarditis and kind of, you know, they go through the risks from of that from COVID versus from the vaccine. You know, you, you, you see data on, um, you know, the amount of kind of antibody response people mount from a prior infection to COVID, which is a bit different and not quite as strong, I guess, on average than somebody who's vaccinated. So I think maybe to some extent, some of the concerns of the ACIP was addressed, but I, I would have liked to like, just like intellectually, it would have been helpful for me to kind of understand like more clearly why they disagreed with the FDA panel. And I, that, that didn't really come up. And again, I don't know if it's just sort of a like, a sign of like their panels are sort of disconnected and they don't necessarily see themselves as linked. So maybe the ACIP members, you know, the, these are people that um, are active physicians, <laughs> you know, working um, other jobs, you know, maybe they didn't pay that close attention to that meeting. Um, but it would have been helpful for me to kind of get a better sense of, you know, why there was sort of a, a different philosophy of the two committees. Yeah, I think our uh, our sense of what uh, um uh, CDC might do, and perhaps even the uh, uh, FDA advisor's uh, um, sense of what CDC might do was colored by the uh, the booster discussion, where they, you know, obviously sort of kind of wanted to uh, curtail the booster recommendation, and then sort of were uh, um, the the final recommendation sort of more matched uh, what FDA uh, um, uh, had in mind after uh, um, uh, CDC director. Uh, uh, Walensky uh, um, disagreed with uh, uh, the ASIP recommendation on uh, on that, and uh, you know, to the extent that sort of kind of a uh, uh, you know a vaccine for kids is sort of kind of a more classic ASIP problem. They followed sort of a more classic uh, ASIP problem, uh, ASIP uh, pattern. They sort of kind of looked at the uh, looked at the data and sort of uh, you know saw that this was a uh, um, you know a very deadly disease in uh, children, and uh, you know CDC had this. Uh, um, very compelling uh, couple of slides looking at hospitalizations and deaths for uh, children with uh, with COVID compared to uh, um, other diseases that they uh, already get vaccines for. And, uh, you know, COVID's off the charts in terms of sort of how much more uh, deadly and dangerous it is uh, um, relative to those, uh, um, what those those uh, diseases were before uh, before vaccines. And that's sort of kind of, uh, you know, sort of kind of gave uh, ASIP perhaps uh, more of a sense of mission than, uh, um, than this sort of kind of weird booster uh, um debate that happened earlier because you know boosters just aren't sort of a big uh, um uh vaccine thing in the way that uh, um you know obviously there are you know you know we get flu shots every year and uh, you know tdap boosters and that kind of stuff but it's not sort of kind of the uh the same sort of kind of a uh, emergency situation that's sort of kind of the boosters were being presented at it was sort of kind of could have caused some uh, discomfort so i think it was sort of more a uh this is more classic asip about sort of kind of just sort of kind of uh deciding sort of kind of how broad it should be and they uh they went broad as they often do although uh they don't always go broad uh, our colleague bridget uh, um silverman covered the next day where they talked about hepatitis b and they did not uh Go universal on uh, um, on that one, although they still went uh, went pretty broad. So uh, um, you know it can uh, um, they can uh, um, go against the grain sometimes, even if they didn't really hit it in, in this case. I think it also shows how muddied the data 
were on the whole um, booster issue. I I was surprised that they didn't even discuss the idea of sort of drilling down the subpopulations of kids. I wasn't surprised by their overall recommendation, but the fact that it came up at the VRPAC and really did not come up at all at ASIP sort of surprised me, given what we had just been through with the meetings on the boosters. Yeah, maybe I, I do wonder, right, if to some degree in the back of their mind, there was um, obvious, I think the public felt like the, or the perception is that the public felt like the booster recommendations were confusing and, you know, how do you figure out if you qualify? And maybe there is this sense of that giving more complex recommendations wasn't going to be helpful. Yeah, and well, and the other thing that kind of really, during the VRPAC meeting anyway, that kind of ended the discussion of subgroups was Peter Marks saying that if we start, you know, cutting this up and just saying not everyone can get it, you're going to create a situation where socioeconomic uh, issues and other things kind of deter help determine whether or not you can get the vaccine at all. And I don't think anybody wanted to try and restrict, you know, access along those lines. So, I mean, that I mean, in my mind, that kind of ended the discussion with the FDA people. I mean, it, and maybe maybe that that was what why they didn't even think about discussing it, um, you know, with at the at the CDC. I mean, the other thing and, uh, you know, for all the talk about asking about subgroups, I don't remember anyone actually having a subgroup that they felt like needed the vaccine, like a one that was actually defined. I mean, maybe maybe I'm just misremembering it, but. Right. I guess like the, the, the two things that came up in my mind would be one, whether a child who has had prior COVID maybe should consider getting only one shot or some ACE. I mean, some FDA members thought maybe they should consider whether they need vaccine at all. But they seem to suggest they wanted some consideration for maybe whether those children only need one shot to be fully vaccinated, which is, I believe, sort of on par with how some countries in Europe are treating um, fully vaccinated. And then I guess the other consideration would be um, knowing that this um, myocarditis um, scenario does seem to affect males more, whether right, there's like a population of males in this five to 11 range, again, that maybe um, the risk benefit balance was either different or maybe again should consider one one shop potentially or something like that the other thing that came up and so you wrote about this and i loved this story was and this is just because i'm a complete wonk on this stuff was that there is going to be situations and it's probably going to be more than we think it will where there's a kid who's 11 right now gets his first shot and two weeks later turns 12 and what do you do then? And they had to talk about this, and I love it. That I thought that was just the coolest thing ever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's going to happen. It happened in their clinical trial. I think they had seven kids, I believe, in their clinical trial who were 11 when they got one dose and 12 when they got the other dose. So um, basically... Um, FDA has given them flexibility. If you look at the EUA letter, FDA has said if a kid goes from 11 to 12 in the middle of the primary series, you can basically give them 
They can get two 10 microgram doses for the 5 to 11 group, or they can get two 30 microgram doses for the um, 12 plus group. So there is some flexibility there. Um, I'm just looking at the CDC's guidelines now, their clinical considerations, and they say that if a child turns 12 between their first and second dose, they should receive the age-appropriate 30 microgram dose, which is the 12 plus dose for their second dose. Um, I guess I'm, I'm wondering how often that's going to happen, given that there is this myocarditis issue um, that's been seen with the 30 microgram dose. It, I mean, the, it's been seen in the 12 to 17 and I believe the 18 to 25 populations primarily. But I, I just I'm a little curious as to how comfortable pediatricians and other health experts are going to be in giving somebody who's newly 12 a second dose of 30 micrograms. Well, yeah, especially when the thinking, at least during the VERPAC meeting, was the lower dose would lower the myocarditis risk. Right. So. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, they're 11, they, <laughs> they get a 10 microgram dose. They, you know, three weeks later, they're, they've turned 12 and they get a dose that's three times the amount. It just seems a little odd to me. So I'd be curious if they're going to be able to, how well they're going to be able to track this. They probably will be able to track it because they're different NDC numbers, um, but how well they would be able to track um, any occurrences of myocarditis for a kid who gets 10 and then the 30 micrograms. Well, and you also are going to have parents that are going to say, well, you know, I'm going to wait until you, I'm going to wait two weeks until you turn 12 and yeah. get you the two big doses as opposed to get one, a small one and then a big one or potentially two small ones or something like that. Yeah, that issue came up. Um, there wasn't a lot of discussion about it, but definitely the sense you got was the ACIP members think you should just go out and get what is available to you given your age on the day of vaccination. Because I think their thinking is any vaccine is better than no vaccine at this point for this age group. Mm -hmm. And just to put a bow on this, Pfizer also mentioned this week that uh, the data for their in their trial for the vaccine in kids age two to four is expected probably by the end of the year, which is good news for those of us who have even younger children. So hopefully we're reaching, we're going to really be able to increase the vaccination effort in kids now going forward. Finally, we're going to discuss the departure of FDA chief scientist Denise Hinton. She had been in the role since 2017, and now another senior position at the agency is filled on a temporary basis. Jacqueline O'Shaughnessy has been named the acting chief scientist. Interestingly, the departure is not the only issue in play here. Sue, you wrote about how Hinton was supposed to be in charge of the process to determine whether the preterm birth drug McKenna can remain on the market. Right. So she was serving in the role of the commissioner in this process. Um, Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner, recused herself from um, this process because of her previous role as director of CEDAR. 
so she had appointed Hinton to um, oversee this process and, and to be the ultimate decision maker on McKenna. And Hinton had appointed um, Celia Witten, the deputy director of, of the Biologics Center, to serve as the presiding officer at the public hearing, um, which still has not been scheduled. But now Hinton has resigned, so we have an acting um, chief scientist. So it's unclear who now is in charge of the McKenna process. FDA did not respond to our question on that um, on the day that we wrote the story. So it, it would seem logical that uh, Jacqueline O'Shaughnessy takes over that role, but you know she came. She previously served in Cedar also, so you know. Who knows if she was somehow involved in in oversight of McKenna? the The McKenna issue is is interesting because nobody's really paying a lot of attention to it. And um, I think Covid is is just so overwhelming to everybody. You know, nobody on the outside is paying much attention to it. But it's important, and it's the second time that an accelerated approval drug is going to go to a public hearing if it actually makes it to the process of the public hearing at this point. Yeah, it's certainly a, a very interesting uh, um, policy situation. Uh, you know, obviously, sort of kind of it's a uh, um, uh, you know uh, very difficult situation for uh, um, the people experiencing uh, uh, preterm birth. But uh, as a uh, as a product, it you know it had remained relatively small and smaller still after sort of kind of the uh, FDA relented and allowed uh, generics to continue on the uh, um, on the market. Uh, Sue, to what extent do you think that your kind of FDA is just fine with her kind of letting this her kind of uh, process limp along like it seems to have been uh, moving relatively uh, slowly? Or uh, um, is there uh, um, a sense that her kind of, uh, um, uh, you know, FDA which really really wants this product off the market? Uh, they obviously sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, moved to do so and, uh, you know, allowed the, uh, the appeal as they statutorily uh, have to. But uh, – um, you could see a universe in which they, uh, um, the agency was kind of very aggressive about deadlines and sort of kind of trying to push, uh, push the hearing forward. Or you could sort of see the, uh, the, the alternate, which is I think where we are now, is that they're sort of, kind of there, um, you know, they're sort of doing their, uh, their due diligence and sort of, kind of uh, um, you know, uh, uh, moving in the direction of uh, pulling the drug, but not, uh, not aggressively so. Yeah, I would go with the limping along philosophy. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think they'd like to see this drug off the market. I don't think it's their, frankly, I don't think it's their top priority. This whole process is moving a lot more slowly than the Avastin process was. Avastin, uh, its indication was withdrawn within 11 months of Cedar saying we're proposing to withdraw it. And we've already passed that point now, um, well past that point. Um, and there's no public hearing in sight. So I just don't, I think FDA has, has other priorities, frankly, at this point, and I don't think they're in a great hurry. Yes, well, had uh, a vast and occurred during a pandemic, who knows what that timeline would have been. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> As I say, I mean, CBER alone has, you know, two or three, you know, higher priorities probably than 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 this with the, in and their staff are already, they're short staffed. They're already, you know, they're working overtime, you know, all the time now. So, yeah. right. And to give Celia Witten more work, 
exactly. that's unrelated to her day job, you know, that was yeah. striking to me in the first place. And, you know, maybe they just did that because they had named uh, in Avast and Karen Midthune, who was the director of CBER at the time, was named as the presiding officer. And maybe they just thought, well, that worked last time, so we'll name the deputy director this time. But, um, yeah, I, I, at the time I questioned, why are we giving somebody in CBER more workload? But... <laughs> I think it's one of those challenges. Like they couldn't. I mean, it's it, from a uh, um, uh, a standpoint of for kind of the, the you know they need someone with a, a fibre of gravitas and sort of having uh, you know the head of uh, uh, food or tobacco uh, um, the food or tobacco center uh, do it for probably does not make as much sense because the you know the Seber uh, is more steeped into kind of uh, you know RX uh, um, issues and uh, you know uh, while. Uh, you know, formally separate, which we're kind of understand it in a way that sort of kind of that someone else uh, at the agency at that uh, level would uh, would really sort of have to get up into there'd be a much more speed to get up to uh, um, for someone else who would be taking on that responsibility. By the way, we should mention that Denise Hinton became the deputy surgeon general, so it's not like she disappeared or something or went into private practice, or private industry, or something like that. She she got promoted. So that, that was why she left. <laughs> it's also worth noting that um, Jacqueline O'Shaughnessy signed the EUA for the Pfizer vaccine in 5 to 11 because Denise Hitton had been the one who had been signing all of the EUAs up to this point. Yes, that is. Yeah, she had been even the, yeah, the commissioner had delegated that um, to her. The, I, I mean, I think I think even Stephen Hahn delegated it to her and then Jackie or um, Janet Woodcock redelegated it to her when they changed it over. But yes. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.